you've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Unlike George Romero, they don't use a biological contagion. Or like 28 Days Later, you know, the modern conception of zombie is that it's a virus. You know, it's a metaphor for virus and it's bacteria or something. But it attacks human flesh. And there's a medical reason. Even The Walking Dead uses that same idiom for zombie. Uh, back in the old days, and especially and with Fulci in, in closer to 1980, these are the few people who are actually using like the mystical occult version. It's the supernatural that wakes up the dead, not a virus that kills people and then they rise back up with snarling mouths, you know, just sort of rotting in their own steps. Hello and welcome to Drinks With God, a podcast about alternative theological experiences, death, and life. All of the following content is based on each interviewee's own personal experiences and is meant to be educational, not confrontational. No, I saw it. Yeah, I saw it in the theater. You know, I mean, it, it came out. Everybody was yakking about it in New York, so I, I felt like I had to be part of the convo. If you didn't see it, I mean, we we can refer to it just very obliquely, but it might not be. If you hadn't seen it, it might not be like totally useful. I mean, it could be brought up as a phenomenon in that there is a movie about uh, Christianity right now that's like a sort of intellectual thing. With a you know par- partially transcendent bent, I don't know. It's your call. How do you, how you want to play that? I mean, I'd very much like to hear like what you have to say because okay. um, I plan on watching it, um, and I okay. want to know like your notes on it in this light going into it. Sure, if that okay. makes sense. Yeah, it's great, great, great. I should probably open up the show though. Uh, so, uh, welcome to another episode of Drinks with God. Um, I'm here with Bill, and we're going to talk about something that I've been bugging all my various old film contacts to talk about, which is just the supernatural and the occult and religion in film. And, uh, well, uh, let's just get that opening question out of the way. Bill, why should we be talking to you about film? (laughs) Uh, that, that is a good question. Well, I guess I have put a couple of years of scholarship into watching movies. Not like I watch a lot of films and since I left day job back in 2009, I kind of like fully threw my back into seeing as many films as possible. And I found a crowd of like-minded people online, which is really cool. I mean, you know, like it's a, it's like a real cesspool on Twitter and online. I have no doubt about that. Um, Yet, I have found some of, like, the coolest, chillest, most, like, smart, encouraging people in the movie Twitter world. And what it winds up being is a really nice, encouraging atmosphere where people trade information. No one makes anyone feel like a fucking dick or stupid for what they don't know. And uh, I think it makes you want to kind of, like, keep up with, like, the text of what's going on. And so, you know, I mean, I've watched movies. I mean, we've all watched movies our whole life. But I think I kind of like took to it more seriously about a little over like a decade ago, where I think that then I'd call myself a cineast or a cinephile. Um, and so, you know, I just try to watch as many as possible as reading culture and writing about culture and podcasting about culture. And I, and I do a lot of podcasts and I sort of do video essays and things like that. So, I mean, I think th- those might count as my bona fides, you might say. Yeah. I mean, also, you were producing a film that I was actually working on, so that's... 
<laughs> you, you, yes. you you've been on either side of that uh of that experience. You've you've consumed and created the product. Yeah, yeah. There was uh, I've studied acting. I've studied filmmaking. I've studied improv. And yeah, we actually once we met on on a set of a, a, a short that a guy named Jared Bernstein was putting together a bunch of, a few years back, and. Um, yeah, I, I don't do as much of it now as I once did because a lot of my collaborators um, were heavily have a heavy theater bent, like comedy, comic type, improv type stuff. And a lot of people have just gotten work on TV, on theater, in, in on Netflix. You know, there's a lot of opportunities out there now for people to make money acting in short, you know, short stuff. I mean, my friends are like on Kimmy Schmidt. They're on like Glow. Things that weren't there five, ten years ago are now there. So, uh, it, you know, they do say the rising tide lifts all boats. So, but I'm happy to have done filmmaking on a short basis. It is. You said it's it's a consumption thing and it's also a production thing. And it's a way to feel like I'm more connected with the art form. So at least I'm not totally talking out of my ass. It's you know it's a little bit of practice in there. Yeah, I mean I constantly complain that whenever I'm watching a movie, I'm not just someone who's watching the movie. I'm also critiquing and thinking about oh god that must have cost so much money to just coordinate. And every time there's a fight scene, I'm just kind of like oh no they threw it wrong. Or how many takes did it take to do that landing? We're just kind of like, oh damn, they they are a fant- they are very talented swordsmen. <laughs> like, yeah, I I think uh, I, I look at it. That's it's funny. That's a, that's a phenomenon. I think in when I did film classes, the first thing the guy said at the beginning was that yeah, you're going to not watch movies anymore the way you used to, and that doesn't mean you're not going to enjoy them. It just means you have a different like sensory apparatus, and it's true. I think I, I kind of look at films more now as an editor a little bit, and said I I understand it's like this is the synthesis of two shots and i imagine like what happened between those two shots what did they cut out to put the two things together just on a very sort of fundamental craft basis um wondering like what the person did did somebody go to the craft services table between that shoot that they go get like a bag of potato chips and then come back and yell at the director all that stuff is fascinating to me Whenever there's a crane shot or an unbroken, like, swoop bit, I'm always, like, grabbing the person next to me. It's like, ooh, crane shot, crane shot, crane shot. The person next to me is always just kind of like, I don't know you. Ah, stop. Stop touching me. <laughs> Security. <laughs> yeah, I, I, had, I don't have any larger feature... Um experience and to be honest I'm, I'm really okay with that I mean I the people I know who do work on the uh, production side of, of larger features Jesus man it seems like drudgery I understand that there is uh, a difference between like a little jerk off film like I would make with friends um, whether they were comedians or improvs or stuff like that things we were making for YouTube and like watching guys who actually work for a living with like a walkie-talkie on their hips or not, I mean, not just guys, but obviously people who, who make these movies. And it's like, man, it's a job. It's not just this thing that I love to look at intellectually. People bust their asses on this shit. And it's like you get fired and you can not make a lot of money and you could like just get yourself exhausted stopping cars on the street in Brooklyn while you're trying to get Will Smith to do a, a, a take with Kevin James in the movie Hitch. You know, like when we <laughs> – Come upon a, a, a production, you know, in progress on the street, something Dick Wolf related. It's like that part seems like a real bummer. You had to make money doing it yeah. <laughs> rather than just a pure, a pure aesthetic pursuit. I just, I'd like to keep it that way, not not pretend that I'd have ever had to actually do it someday for a living. Yeah, that's why I stuck to B movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the subject of 
everything that I kept my career to, which was schlock and B-movies and horror, which the two movies that we decided to make the topic of our conversation were zombie movies, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, there, not there really. is a, well, there's, well, I mean, you know, it's hard to talk about uh, Santeria and Voodoo without there being a zombie component, even just like obliquely offhand. I mean, one movie is definitely zombie related for sure. Yeah, the other's just like um, zombie adjacent. Yes. Yeah. Not like not like a George Romero thing, but really in like the nuts and bolts of a cult. Maybe a cult is even more a better yeah. way of putting it. Um, yeah, so we're talking about Angel Heart today, uh, 1987 by director Alan Parker, mm-hmm. and uh, the one of the the grand dame of the genre. Uh, I walked with a zombie, 1943. Uh, Jacques Tourneur, who who was a again not somebody I hadn't really known about until I threw my back into filmmaking and uh, I mean, uh, film viewing as a cineast. Realized this guy was like a big piece of the history of like noir filmmaking. Oh yeah, and Luton and Conway they did a. a- triad of really fantastic horror movies yeah yeah uh i saw yeah i saw cat people Mm -hmm. i think it was uh last year at the moma they were doing one of those uh archival rep screenings i'm like oh my god this movie kicked my ass i mean i i mean i love any type of all these movies i'll see anything i'll see preston sturgis i'll see roger corman doesn't matter to me but um there was a grittiness to it there was a a romance and a a level of threat and suspense that it had that i just wasn't expecting from something from around wartime or i guess it was a couple of years after wartime but it was it was yeah jack turner was a really impressive uh, craftsman he did you know, Frenchman who did all his say most of the stuff we know him for. He did it in the states in the studio system, and yeah, it had had a um, a real kinship with Val Luton, who was a producer extraordinaire who just uh, knew how to build these things. Uh, yeah, he really did a well. couple. He did, um, I think let's see, he did with Conway. He also did the Seventh Victim, which was like the other one that triad, and they also uh, Luton also did the Isle of the Dead, if I remember correctly. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, it's that, that it's a little bit of a hazy spot to me because uh, that's a dark spot in my uh, my, rep- my repertoire. I feel like I, in terms of zombie movies, I put my uh, I push my chips on the felt towards like Lucio Fulci and the guys in the late seventies and early eighties. Those um, Giallo directors really did it for me, mm-hmm. and I have kind of left this, this stuff on the table, not really under not really knowing how great this was. So I got a lot of catch up work to do. Oh, you know, forties horror. There's some great stuff there. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is, it's all code, right? I mean, we're all talking about the code came in in the 30s, and I guess it started to relax in the in the mid to late 60s. Yeah. So this was in the middle of, um, you know, the most timid, trepidatious era in American filmmaking, where they were trying to push back on the, the, the sensationalism and the sort of uh, intimated violence of the 1930s, the gangster films, essentially. Oh, yeah. Although, if you can find, like, occasionally you'll be able to dig up some, like, really er- early horror films, I've got a link somewhere to a horror film that's from, I think, I like, the 20s. It's, like, a very early horror film, like, probably one of the first ones. And it's trippy. It's, like, Dr. Zhivago kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's, fasc- that's oh, fascinating. Oh, yeah, it's, like, silent film, just, like, it, like Metropolis-era kind of stuff. It's great. 
But um, yeah, I'm I'm more familiar with like you know Lubish and and Preston Sturgis like that, and you know Marx Brothers. Obviously, that's the kind of stuff that travels out. That's the, I think the first things yeah. that hit you is the the lighter, uh, more comedic stuff, and that's easy to see. And that stuff's always showing in reps. I mean, if you go to Film Forum or or BAM or or MoMA, like oh, yeah. that, that's all over the damn place. You have to dig a little more to find rep screenings of, of the the horror stuff. Maybe just negatives. Don't, I mean, maybe prints don't exist. They just maybe they just fell apart. And they weren't struck too well or just isn't a big supply of them there's the double down saloon there's the lucky 13 saloon but there's a couple like just random bars around um brooklyn and and, um lower east side that were showing a bunch of just like old horror screenings like a year or two ago um there's also like a maya darren festival in one of those at one point for some reason but um (laughs) that's kind of random yeah that's like yeah i was like whoa (laughs) why is this here okay (laughs) vaguely relevant but um but like they're they're able to be found and i think a lot of them are just like digital remastering which is painstakingly i can edit on a steam bed like that's oh really okay yeah, that's that, old school right yeah, like, that's how i learned to edit which um mm. it's it's fun it's very fun yeah. but it's hard that's how you that's what you got to do to like move things out of the crumbling format that a lot of these are in into the digital age, and a lot of people just aren't willing to take the time. But, you know, for somebody's final project, if they're, like, super artsy and really into horror, there are people out there who will do that. Right. Oh, man, you know, speaking of horror, I just watched this movie from a director called uh, uh, E. Elias Merhij. He's the man that made that uh, Willem Dafoe Shadow of the Vampire, which was a fictionalized version of the, sh- the shooting of Nosferatu, you know, the, F- uh, the Mo- uh, Murnau. Yes. Murnau's. So this guy, he only made one Hollywood movie to date, as far as I know. It was Shadow of the Vampire, which was great. Willem, Willem Dafoe played Count Orlock, who actually was a real vampire in that, which is pretty cool. Um, the first movie this guy had made, Elias Merhige, I think he's I think he's a Brooklyn guy. Is this movie called The Begotten, which is just like the most weird, fucked up, uh, scary thing I've ever seen on film, and it. There aren't many films that I've seen, and I mean, this is all film. I mean, it's it's based on it's heavily artifacted, overexposed film. It uses every single reason why you would employ sixteen millimeter film, the way they used to in horror movies. But the guy made it in like nineteen ninety two, nineteen ninety three. But it looks like something spat out of hell. Um, it's so unsettling. There are. Like I said, there are not many movies I would say look like something you shouldn't be seeing. I mean, and I've seen, you know, Grindhouse, snuff-type snuff films and stuff like that. This movie had such a craft to it, and it was such an arcaneness, uh, a weird arcana thing that um, I just didn't know what I was looking at. But it was so affecting because it's so hard to pull something out of the ether that you don't know what you're seeing, just because we see everything these days. And that was this craft experiment that was just so impressive. I mean, if, if anybody, it's on YouTube. If anybody really wants to see a horror movie that really lives up to the, uh, the, the, you know, the name horror movie, it's this movie called The Begotten. I would totally recommend it. With a B? Yeah, yeah, Begotten. Yeah. Cool. I'll post a link to that. I'm sure I'm going to be able to find it. Cool. Yeah. No, it's out there. Again, it's crappy, but there is no other version but the crappy. It came out crappy. It was made crappy looking to begin with. That was the point, was to make this strange, like, you know, message from hell. It looked (laughs) looked like it was dug up somewhere. Yeah. I would be surprised if he didn't actually bury the print in dirt for a couple of weeks (laughs) just to live. Just to give it some kind of fucked up, jacked up look. I went to art school. I know the weird shit that you do just to make it look authentic. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I I just have a liberal arts degree. I'm a I'm a boring small man from Long Island University. They didn't really teach us how to think outside the box there that much. You've you've gotten very far outside the box, despite you know since then. <laughs> I like I like to think so. So uh, so, where do you want to start, uh, Captain? You want to get start back in time, back in the back in the old days with uh, uh, I walked with a zombie, and chronologically move up to the present. Or? Yeah, let's start with that one. You keep talking. You go first. <laughs> okay. Well, it was uh, you know, like I said, I knew that going into it. You say I walk with a zombie and you have a movie in the 40s. I know that we're going to see black men prostrating themselves in strange ways. Um, and I know that the representation of the actors is going to be troubling by our standards. And, I mean, all those things were, were true. And to a certain degree, you can't let it go. But, it, um, you know, at the same time, I let it go a little bit because that's just the tenor of filmmaking back then. So, so uh, you know, th- this is, takes place on an island. A woman is – she gets this job uh, somewhere in the States, and then she's sent aboard like a steamer down to the Caribbean as a mythical island or a fictional island called San Sebastian, which I, you know, is on purpose. You know, it, 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 I did, I did, haven't known much about San Sebastian before I actually went to Rome and went to the Vatican. Then I understood, Oh, San Sebastian, one of the arrows sticking out of his chest. It's like that image is plucked out of Catholicism and Christianity on purpose because the figurehead of the ship that they're taking over like has a, a San Sebastian masthead yeah. um, and in the garden of the plantation is like the original slave ship and they keep I mean this movie actually refers to slavery a lot as well saying that's like this cursed legacy of the island it was the, the island was populated by by pain and avarice and, and it has not let it go even though it's hundreds of years hence um, so this woman gets a job to be a nurse on this island and she gets there and you'd say it's this this you know white lady who's a very nice waspy figure the way you expect them in movies and you know she's gonna have a culture clash just because she's going to a place that is baked by the heat all day. It is a rough place with unpaved streets and people doing work hacking sugarcane. And, uh, yeah, mostly the, the workforce is, you know, black locals, you know, Afro-Caribbean uh, people who do the work. And she's more thrown in with the plantation owners who run the place. And her job, in fact, as the nurse is to administer to the – what would you call it? She's almost like an invalid, right? The, yes, uh, she's like almost in a vegetative state, like ba- essentially vegetative, but she's right. um, like ambulatory. Yeah, like she's like physically capable, but completely like gone, like shell shocked. Something like that. Yeah, they mentioned that there was a, a, a fever that had infected her spinal column, and so it's like she has motor functions. And she, but she's not lucid. She can walk and be dragged around. Not be dragged around. She literally walks on her own. On, on her own. She locomotes. It's just that she is glassy. There's nothing behind the eyes. Yeah. It's like higher brain function is gone. There's no cog. There's no cognition. There's just locomotion. Yeah, just sleepwalking. Uh, yeah, kind of like sleepwalking. Exactly. And you, you could make the you know look. The name of the movie is I Walked with a Zombie, and I think you understand that what they're getting at is that from the very the moment that the nurse sees this woman, they're telling you she's a zombie, she's a zombie. Um, 
you know, they kind of explain to the nurse, like, who it is she'll be taking care of, and they'll say how she got to the position that she's in. But she doesn't actually meet her charge until a dark night of the soul, where she hears this, the nurse is woken up by the sound of this, uh, I guess it's like shuffling of feet, and it's not ululation, because she doesn't, she doesn't vocalize anything. Maybe it was weeping? I think it was weeping is one of the things. Anyways, yeah. These strange, yeah, these strange phenomenon caused the nurse to come out of bed. The nurse's name is Betsy, in case we refer back to her that way. And she emerges from her sleep chambers and her silken robe, as they do, and her, her beautiful kitten you know, slippers. You know, all, all, white silk is just kind of like what women wear in these films. It, cause, right. And know, it's, I, I guarantee it's 98 degrees and blazing sun, yeah, but, but you would sleep in silk. Yeah, it's, it's cinematic. Okay, it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, un, yeah, right, it's cinematic. There's not a single crease or, or kink in it. It's just the most beautiful garment you yeah. can imagine, and she just woke up in it. She just woke up, but she also just ironed it. It's fine. <laughs> So, I mean, this movie starts with a kick in the ass so that this woman is, you know, already feels like she's a stranger in a strange land. And then she follows the strange sounds to this uh, turret. It's like a spiral staircase and at the top of a, a turret. And the woman is there and it's like she just sort of appears out of the dark. She appears out of the gloaming with these glassy eyes. And the, the, the nurse is like scared to death by her. It's this shock of a lifetime. And that's where I think the score becomes apparent to her that, oh, this is kind of a fucked up thing where um, she's the wife of the plantation owner. And then she, I think she gets the, the, the clue that the brother, the, you know, that guy's brother was like really digging her back in the days. They were kind of a thing running on like a side piece action before the swamp flu uh, kind of fixed in. And so, you know, a lot of the movie has to do with her figuring out what the dynamic between the two brothers are and, they look like William Holden square jaw types. They're exactly the kind of dudes that you expect to see on screen. Yeah. And I, I thought it was weird that one of them spoke with a British act. They do explain it. One of them has a, the, the very starchy Patrician British accent. And the other one just has that mid-Atlantic uh, American accent that was so endemic in the movies. There's like, oh, we went to separate boarding schools when we were kids. It's like, uh... <laughs> Is that really um, doing the job? I'm not really sure. Uh... Yeah, and so um, the the wife, this woman, uh, uh, what's it, Jessica? Jessica Holland is her name. The Holland family is the ones they run their yes. their plantation is all theirs. Yes, I had her in my head as like Doctor Holland, Mrs. Holland. Yeah, I yeah. Now I wonder. Now, do you think the swamp thing came from that? Do you think that's a, you know that was uh, back in the seventies, the Len Wine comics with. Uh, uh, Bernie Wrightson, that, you know, the Alec, Alec Holland was the Swamp Thing, and I, I wonder if that's intentional or unintentional. Oh, that'd be such a cool reference back. I, I really right? hope so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, those comics were made, I want to say Swamp Thing popped out in like 73 or 74 as a horror character, and uh, I mean, you know, hey, it could be anything. It yeah. could just be a coincidence, but that's I'll, I'll draw that connection. Sure. Uh, so, so the, um, you know, she she's getting the lay of the land of this of this island i think the island is more or less just the plantation or uh, there's there's looks like a little ghost town outside which like it's very much like a hard drinking uh sawdust on the floor type caribbean like a lot of rum being people getting shit faced on on out there and it looks almost like there might be like some sort of like vague fishing thing going on like right but um you know you mostly just see like town giant plantation fields lots of fields some roads yeah, um, and this is this is 
this is the part where the racism thing comes into it in that in terms of actors, African-American actors who actually have lines, I think it's just um, the, what's her name? Uh, Teresa Harris, who plays Alma the Maid, and she has a very verbal, vocal performance. Uh, she plays Alma the Maid, as she did, and she played a lot of maids. Doing some research on her, she was an incredible actor, but was frequently uncredited as were black actresses back in the day. Yeah. Um, although, funny thing, they said if Teresa Harris was in a movie and you were playing it in a black community somewhere in the South, uh, or, or what they would do is they would put her name on the marquee first, even though, like, maybe, you know, Clark Gable was in it, he would get second billing in black neighborhoods, which you'd figure, oh, that's the way it should be. Yeah, uh, yeah that's a corrective. Um, yeah, and there's also this this actor named Darby Jones, who I'd seen before. He's a very lithe, uh, wiry man, a black a black actor, and his his signature was that he had how'd you describe it, Milo? Like bug eyes? It's like they're popped out eyes, right? Yeah, and he was. I'm trying to think of what else I had seen him in because he's got a very distinctive face, and I've definitely seen him in something else yeah. around the time. But he doesn't. In this movie, he doesn't say anything. He just—he's just. I'm not even sure if he has contact lenses in to kind of like his eyes are already. Have, it's like I think I guess it's Graves' disease. There's a specific disease that makes your eyes kind of pop out of your head, yeah. and it is a supernatural look. But this guy had a career. I'd say went at least 20 years playing strange, exotic black men, which I'm, I'm sure it paid the bills if it wasn't the most dignified thing in the world. But. Um, you know, then again, little people actors work for years and years too, doing things like munchkins and, you know, they, they wanted to get paid and they should have got paid. I'm sorry. It's just all, you know, it's all munchkins and weird dwarfs, but that's what the work was back then. So, you know, again, not the most dignified work, but at least it was, uh, it was work. You can sort of pick through the legacy of filmmaking with guys like, um, Darby Jones, um, yeah. But much like the much like the wife, uh, the invalid sort of vegetative wife, you kind of get the impression that because this actor, his character Carrefour, is a mute, you sort of wonder are the mute characters coded as zombies a little bit? That's the thing I got yeah. instantly because they don't they don't say that you know they don't explain that outright. But they behave the same way. Yes. Yeah. Um, exactly. And. You know the, the the synthesis between what the the doctor there's a doctor who a full doctor who lives on the island she's there to be a nurse and the doctor is kind of like putting a stethoscope away and intoning in his very you know sort of waspy mid Atlantic patrician accent about how it was fever that attacked her spinal cord and robbed her of the gift of, of speech and, and you know reduced her to this shape you know this shape and it, it like there's science trying to tell you there's a biological component but then this movie is heavily soaked with with occult. And, you know, spiritual mysticism. You could say that it's exoticism. You could say that it is um, the way a lot of movies did, where you would take this primarily black uh, and Afro-Caribbean, you know, uh, centric belief system and use that as kind of a stand-in for Satan or something you can't understand. I mean, they don't actually say Satan here at all. Um, not nearly as much as they do, like, for instance, an angel heart, yeah. which we'll get to talking about. But the uh, idea that it is exotic and that this is the way of the black people, those barefoot savages running around pounding on drums. It's every single thing that white people would be afraid of. It's like you're no longer in the United States. You are in this island, San Sebastian. It's like the province of the like the black savage who his ways are unknown to you you know they're the drums and the sound of the blown conch shell 
these things are all the, the sounds of horror uh, just because they're they're incontrollable, they're unknowable. You know, who knows what kind of disaster or damage or death follows from their from their weird arcane habits. Um, in fact, you you do hear drumming almost all throughout. Um, which did you ever see? Uh, what is it, Lucio Fulci's zombie, the one with the shark attack, uh, the zombie versus shark? No, but I've heard a lot about it, and it is on my to watch list. Yeah, man, it's great. And the thing is, it's um, it takes that takes place in Santo Domingo. That's in the Dominican. I mean, that movie I think was shot in nineteen uh, seventy nine, um, and there's something incredible about it because you hear drumming, very the very similar drumming the whole time in that movie. You know, that movie is a pitch black gore fest with a shitload of like eyeball damage and like really desiccated like cadavers walking around it's like the the apotheosis of the zombie film um but but the thing is though is that in lucio fulci movies unlike george romero they don't use the biological contagion or like 28 days later you know the modern conception of zombie is that it's a virus you know it's a metaphor for virus and it's bacteria or something but it attacks human flesh and there's a medical reason. Even The Walking Dead uses that same idiom for zombie. Uh, back in the old days, and especially and with Fulci in, in closer to 1980, these are the few people who are actually using like the mystical, occult version. It's the supernatural that wakes up the dead, not a virus that kills people and then they rise back up with snarling mouths, you know, just sort of rotting in their own steps. And so you get the impression that the drums are the instrument of reanimation, or at least it's, it's, it's part and parcel with the rituals, the, the voodoo rituals. And I think that the movie is trying to give you the sense of creepiness, like the, the sonic environment is just closing in on you. I mean, I love shit like that. That's just like, that's not so much cinematic as it is, sound design that's just you know something that you would hear and people can re- respond to this diegetic sound coming from off screen and they could they could you know oh it's creepy it's supposed to make the characters feel creepy because they're being beset upon like they're being influenced by the sound coming out of the jungle as if you can put a gate in front of your plantation you can lock that gate yeah. but you can't stop the sound from coming in you know, it's it's like the uh, Pepe Le Pew uh, tail hand thing that just sort of gets into your nostrils and carries you away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's the or it's the aural equivalent to that. And I mean, I just you know whatever. That's my own personal predilection is like loving the sound of Caribbean drums. It, it, I mean, it is again the the uh, you know they're, I'm sure in real Santa Maria. And you said you've you've done episodes and you've done actual. You know, actual studies on on Santa Maria and what it what it is and what it isn't, and we know movies will just like to pluck the little bit of it that they want it to be because yes. it's scary and it's exotic. So there's a place for it. There's also a place for dolls, and there was, like you said, there was a voodoo doll in this uh, movie as well, right? Yes, and as anybody who had heard the episode that I like did, where I was interviewing an actual uh, Mambo priestess, um, voodoo dolls aren't really a thing. <laughs> <laughs> They're uh, they're made up. <laughs> it's very cinematic, though. Yeah, it's 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 a very cinematic thing. Um, they're uh, they're Wiccan, in fact. <laughs> they're a Wiccan. They're a Wiccan thing, which is why you'd see a lot of talk about voodoo dolls after Gerald Gardner, who was around in when was it the forties, which is. <laughs> Um, I did an episode both with uh, of Monbo Priestess and also somebody who grew up in a Fonsedith and Santeria household, and so both those episodes I'll post link to um, in the sh- in the show notes. 
But voodoo dolls are not a voodoo thing. They're very much something that you'll find popping up. An actual practice is something that people will actually use after Gerald Gardner came around, um, you know, post-40s. Anytime before then, any reference to voodoo dolls or anything like that would actually be someone um, calling them, like, fetish dolls. And a lot of times they'll be, like, mislabeled artifacts that have to, that aren't meant for any sort of ritual purpose. And when it comes to actual Santeria practices, what I thought was really fantastic was how voodoo was portrayed as a actual religion and as an actual part of the culture in I Walked With a Zombie. Even the, like, the whole question of zombieism aside, the way that voodoo worked both as a way that the actual, the people actually worked together, um, to, like, kind of, like, come, like, go through this pathway, and we're all meeting at, at this point, and we're all, like, dancing together, we're playing the drums together, and, um, we're all taking time, times to, like, get advice from the manbo, and the, and the way the dancing's explained, the way that, um, you know, interacting with the natural world is explained, um, and finding one's own personal interaction with the natural world, and having, like, just the ne- that one bit with, like, the boy that had the necklace, um, that brief moment. Like, those are all things that, like, were done surprisingly well <laughs> in I Walked With a Zombie. Um, so, I, I was, like, very surprised. <laughs> well, they, they specifically mentioned, I mean, they, the, the terminology of the Hungan and the, the home fort, yeah. and all those things I saw, yeah, somebody did 10 minutes of research <laughs> you know, back back in 43 and got that shit right, which, I mean, I was, I was glad. There's a, you can split the difference between respectfulness to, to, uh, uh, to black people back in the day, or whatever level of, of discourse passed as respectfulness. And then there's the level of filmmaking in terms of exoticizing the Afro-Caribbean Islanders, which is not necessarily your American black people, but a whole different strain of scary black man. I mean, you know, the black man was already scary enough in their cities and in their suburbs and wherever else. But, um, you know, this, this was the, as as much as you know, a bone through the nose, you know, pounding on the dirt, going back to Africa. Yeah. So I, who knows what the impetus was? I, I know that the grittier you get, the more scary and the more authentic it is. If if um, Turner and Luton were interested in making a movie that was rooted in the detail to make you feel like, oh shit, this is uh, this, is <laughs> this very- can actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this can actually happen. Uh, then by all means, keep doing that work. I mean, you know, they 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 got this like with cat people. If I could refer to cat people for a minute, the oh, woman yeah. in cat, the woman in cat people, I think is a Hungarian or a Czech actor who's playing the sort of titular cat person. And I mean, not that there weren't actresses or actors with you know Eastern European accents who who came. You know, Peter Lorre was in Hollywood for years and years and years. Bill Lugosi, etc. But um, I think in that case, bringing an actor over who had Eastern European or Central European roots made it seem a little more unknowable. Like the woman was a little scarier because who knows where she came from? Who knows what kind of weird ways they have back over there? Let's tap into that xenophobia. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, let's... (laughs) Listen... (laughs) Come on, that's like you're gonna make a movie, you know. I'm sorry, you're gonna scandalize, a, you know, alienate a few cultures along the way. That, um, that's how it's how I've worked in enough <laughs> horror to know that's how it goes. Yeah. It's weird. Actually, you know, I, this is this is a, a zigzag, but I mean, uh, have you ever seen 
the very loaded and very controversial Song of the South from 1949, the Disney film. Have you ever seen that? I have indeed. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, great. Because I'm I, like knocking on doors and not getting answers about this. I mean, I know it's difficult to see because it's actually not even in circulation. But, you know, I, I kind of like got one off the torrents, as it were. And me and the wife were like going through the whole Disney roster. And we made that. I said, I got to see this. I have to see this. You know, and it's like, that's another movie that's filled with, it's more black actors in that movie than you're going to see anywhere else. So in, in a way, especially for 1949, it's crazy how, rep, you know, how representative it is. Uh, and the lead actor who played Uncle Remus was this actor named James Basquette, who actually did not, he died of a heart attack, I want to say three years after Song of the South. He was maybe in his late 40s. Uh, he, he did not have a long career. Um, but, you know, that's a weird thing. I'm, I'm watching the movie and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, boy, this is filled with all these, these mammy and pappy stereotypes. And Jesus, this is like really depressing. Also, Walt Disney knew very well back when he made Song of the South that people weren't cool with that. Like black people in who worked for Disney and, you know, out in the community were like picketing Disney for a long time trying to say, hey, don't fuck this up. This is something like you could easily choke on this and, and do it badly. Maybe you shouldn't do it. And he, Walt Disney said, no, I know exactly what I want to do. I want to make this look like the way I think black people and their rousing spirituals. And you wind up getting something that's demeaning through the, you know, through the eyes of a, a waspy filmmaker, you know, yep. <laughs> a little, a little bit, a little bit. However, though, it's like how many times were you going to see that many black actors and actresses on film? So it's like it's also revolutionary in its own way. And I think you have to take that. I mean, I don't have to take shit. I'm a white man. What am I going to tell anybody what to do? But I, I feel like, wow, there's something really impressive about watching this because it's simply put, one of these times you've never seen something like this before. Um, and, and to a degree, like seeing all these black actors in this movie too, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it is gritty realism, but it's also representation. It's a sign of where the business is going. And you do have a couple of really great performances like Teresa Harris. It's just fucking great. It's Alma the Maid. You know, and she's she's woven into the plot. It's not just uh, coming in and, can I fold your towels, ma'am? It's nothing like that. She actually delivers exposition and gives some context to what's going on yeah. because she's of the people and she's the mouthpiece. Whether or not uh, more than one black actor was allowed to have lines just as a bit of custom or practice is a different story, but I think she does most of the heavy lifting. With the exception of the, uh, the, the, the I think he's from St. Lucia or Jamaica, the sort of singer who's making up the song about... Yes. Hey, yeah, that's another weird character, but... And apparently that song's been like covered several times and a cover became a really big hit in Australia for some reason. I was doing some wow. research on that. Um, That's kind of, I mean, it's a great song and he was a legendary singer. I should say legendary. He, I wasn't a legend to me, but I understand he had a long career and he was, I can't remember what his name was, but he had um, a very, uh, he was sort of a pop singer of the time and he did these uh, Calypso songs. He was like, you know, the Calypso dude for the forties. And so yeah. bringing out, Sir Lancelot was his name. That yes. was, I was just like, it was a uh, round table reference. I was like, I should know this. <laughs> Luckily, this wasn't exactly, you don't need to know about Mar uh, Mordred. This was more about just the appropriation of the guy's name. Yeah. His performance name was Sir Lancelot. Yeah. Uh, but I think him and, and Teresa Harris were the only, I think, speaking roles for black actors. Even though in the voodoo, like, in the, they're in the home fort towards the end of the movie. And there are so many black actors. And you don't hear, there's, there's like a, a, what do they call it, a susurrus, a whispering. Yeah. You don't actually hear distinct voices. They actually speak to each other, but not to the camera, which is another weird thing. And there was, um, well, there was that big exposition moment um, from the driver where he's trying to talk about how 
awful slavery was and the founding of the we're setting up that whole thing and she's just kind of like oh it's so pretty here and he's just like if you say so <laughs> oh man that is such a dark moment she yeah. says and if he you just, say like, so stares with, a, at the with camera, a smile on his face yeah he just stares at the camera just like looking at D after she like says all that and she's like looking around at the birds and she's just kind of like wow white people <laughs> Uh, that was great. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, they must have understood the sarcasm that they were like. Even though you don't really see a shitload of sarcasm or irony injected into things back then. Um, yeah, he got a chance to say something really incisive that I bet went over people's heads. <laughs> I mean, now it now it can't. There's no way you'd watch it. And you, your reaction, I believe, is the proper one, where it's like, uh, Jesus, man, that guy just like dropped some hard science. In fact, I, I made mention to it, but slavery is woven in. The concept of slavery and the slave ships that came here were like woven into the culture of the Caribbean, which it is. And this movie doesn't try to elide that. You know, they, this is a plantation. And even though these aren't slaves, they essentially are still sharecroppers. They're just, you know, mendicant workers who wake up from dawn to dusk cutting down cane and squeezing it to make send sugar back to the States. It's a very hard scrabble life. Yeah. So. Conditions haven't really improved that much, even though there's nominally no slavery in the islands in the 1940s. Um, yeah, if you study a little bit about it, we've been to a couple islands in the Caribbean. I mean, it is something that no, nobody forgets what it was like back in the old days. And, you know, like you'd had the, the, the slave revolts in Haiti, which I think were in the early 19th century, and they were very bloody, right? They were like big crackdowns and heavily yeah. violent affairs, things like that. Um and then even a place like St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands, there was a population of people who fought, they fought back. I mean, everyone, everyone always says, oh, if there's slavery, we'd, we'd fight back. And it's like, the fuck, they fucking did fight back. They raised plows and, and pitchforks and they killed a lot of people, but they, it was always cracked down harder. Like they would, they would smush you further and further, uh, to, to, crack you and break you and that happened in the caribbean all throughout i like the fact you know this movie doesn't try to whitewash that i mean literally whitewash it you know yeah one other note that i do want to make is when i was going into the movie aside from um knowing about the whole luton and conway powerhouse having seen two of their movies already was saint sebastian i'd only known him of what he'd come to represent post aids crisis oh Drop that on me. I know nothing about this. Tell I mean, me. Modern day, he's he's the saint of homosexuality. Oh. Um, with all the arrows, he's considered like the saint, the patron saint of those afflicted with HIV and AIDS, and anyone who's been um, you know persecuted or killed because of their sexual orientation. Wow. How did I not know this? I'm a dumbass. That's crazy. No, it's so like I saw that and I was like, oh, that's weird. But like that's of course, <laughs> I was kind of like, wait, this is forty years too soon. <laughs> But I, I mean, these, uh, there's cause, not causality. When I say there's connections to everything, it's like you, it's impossible not to see something like that. And it, if it's so laden with meaning, forty years uh, uh, thereon, it still means something. I mean, that's that's what the important part of filmmaking, uh, film watching with the critical eye is, is, is take, taking stock of all this stuff. Because he's the saint of persecution. Uh -huh. Persecution by yeah. your fellow man. Yeah, that's interesting. Now you see, that's the thing. I. I you know, when you walk through the Vatican and you walk through St. Peter's, you know, you see all the effigies of, of St. Sebastian. And other than the fact that sometimes the, 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 the Catholic saints uh, are, are always shown in a tableau, it almost looks like the Avengers to some degree because, oh, look, here's there's St. Bartholomew with his skin. And here's St. Sebastian with the arrows. And here's 
here's a Saint. All the different versions of them, they're like they put them together to make it look like it's Captain America, Thor, Hulk, Black Widow. <laughs> I really just love that, like, man, they were so far ahead of their time, or at least the Renaissance representation of them was, to, to put them all together. Like, this is your, your first superhero team. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Yeah, centuries beforehand, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think I think we're pretty much right at the, the, the peak of the movie, you know? It's like, I, you, get, you get the impression that, or at least it's been confirmed now to some, uh, that Jessica is not just, you, you could say maybe she had a bacterial infection or a viral infection, but uh, the mother, the, the two brothers who run this place, the mother says that she had brought the uh, wife there sort of against her will and she was turned into a zombie as a little bit of payback because I think that the Jessica, the, the sick lady, was stepping out with the brother and was about to sort of break the family up. And so the, the mother decided to, like, ambush her and have her turn into a zombie. Yeah. Now, Milo, I know that there was, like, one actual history, like, remarks of one actual bona fide zombie, I think, in the history of the 20th century. Is that correct? There was some dude down in, like, Haiti that yeah. they they say, is, oh, he's the one, he's the actual one zombie that uh, this this kind of thing is based on. Um, you're talking about the everything that uh, Wade Davis had done research on. Yeah, something ser- like that. Serpent and the Rainbow? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which, of which there's the book and there's the movie. Um, yeah, Wade Davis, who is a botanist and an ethnologist and um, one of my heroes, <laughs> He, uh, <laughs> um, I actually have the Botany and Chemistry of Hallucinogens, which was written by his um, patron um, sitting right over there. So he was a he was an ethnologist who went down to Haiti to investigate what was going on down there because they had dug turned dug up they had but um cha they had turned up two <laughs> two cases one which was a little bit more credible than the other of people who had been confirmed by authorities in the 60s to have been proclaimed very dead, buried, and then a couple, like, weeks to months later, wandered into another town with no memory, barely able to talk, you know, motor functions. Yeah. um, And then the local authorities were like, oh, what the fuck is this? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Wade Davis was sent down because... Everybody who he was working for up in Yale was kind of like, hey, Mr. Tropical Ethnologist who just fresh from the Amazon basin discovering more stuff, um, like with mushrooms and things. We need you to um, go down there because if there is a local plant or drug or whatever composition, we could very much use a great thing for anesthesiologists up here to take advantage of. Go on down there, please. And so he's just kind of like, oh, okay, yay, I could discover a new plant. And he's like, and now I'm involved in a murder investigation. <laughs> is the short and short version of that and it's really fantastic because um he's like a super optimistic like botany guy he's kind of like oh man plants it's so pretty here why all this drama i just want to play i just want to play with plants guys just want to do my work (laughs) get out of here why why with all the dead bodies um i want to say his name is like marcelier um Mm -hmm. was the name of the person who was actually confirmed to actually I've got the yeah. book right here. Let me just like walk on over to my bookshelf. There we go. Um Clervius Narciss. Narciss. Yeah, that, that that rings a bell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the uh, Antibonite Valley in central Haiti. Yeah, that's I think that's the inspiration for a lot of this. You're talking about that sort of medical I you can't quite uh say it didn't happen if it did happen. And so among the other things it's like predating on people's fears of saying that 
Well, not only can you be turned into a zombie, but sometimes it was punishment. It was like it was like retribution. You know, in, in this movie, Jessica is being punished for her lust. Uh, she's being poisoned essentially by the by the mother who was trying to protect her grown son uh, before the wife had a chance to elope with the other brother. And so the other brother is, has been. You understand why in the course of this movie, the other brother is really dodgy and evasive, and doesn't quite seem like he's he's just drinking himself into a stupor. He's, he's getting shit faced on on whiskey every night, and they don't quite explain why he's getting this behavior. But yeah, the, the movie is. Uh, it, it's it's the drumming actually summons Jessica. Like she she keeps trying to hit the gate to get out of it, but she can't quite operate the gate because she's not really a lucid thinking person. And um, it's like the husband finally realizes that there was this family uh, trickery that the mother was responsible for his wife being turned into a zombie, opens the gate and uh, lets her essentially escape the compound and go towards the sound of the drums where she intercepts with the guy Carrefour, the, the bogged out, uh, bug out African-American man. Uh, well, yeah, he was African-American, but Afro-Caribbean character, Carrefour. And I think the, the interesting part, uh, tethering back to the St. Sebastian thing, is that Wes, that character, uh, pulls out one of the arrows from the St. Sebastian effigy in the center of the plantation and actually impales her with it, I'd like to, to kill her, to actually shut her down. And um, he uh, picks up her, her, her body and walks into the surf. Yeah. And uh, it's almost like me and you are going to go away as we should have when you were alive, but since our life has become a profanity, uh, of what it once was before, let's just end ourselves together. And so they do a very, I mean, how many movies have ended with somebody walking into the waves to, to, to sort of like go back to the sea and drown? It's a, it's a very cinematic or romantic way to, to, to end yourself. Yeah, which I find very interesting that that is the only time that any male character actually does something in the movie. <laughs> I mean, they're not really. Yeah, you know, that's true. They're not really prime movers. There are a lot of like, there's a lot of gabbing, and there's a lot of talking, and there's a lot of like responding, but there's not really a lot of action from those guys. That's true. It's. I thought it was really interesting and actually really cool how it was a very female propelled movie. Um, like the the main character um, Betsy, she was actually you know she was she wanted to try and like get all the information before she made a move, but she was very much pushing the plot forward and like. Uh-huh. Um, and the mother was also, you know, egging her on to do things from the moment that we see the mother on screen. It was just kind of like, I think that you should stop my son from drinking. Yeah. If you can talk to him, stop him from drinking. Yeah. yeah. They eventually they t- take his, his whiskey bottle away. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. So I wonder if, does that mean something? Um, what is the obvious action of female characters as prime movers in the plot mean? I wonder... It can't just have been a coincidence. I assume that there was some intent to it that the men are kind of enervated. They're just walking around in circles to some degree, driven crazy by grief. Uh, you know, two various uh, types of grief. The one brother has had his hookup, his side piece taken away for him, and the other brother is essentially caring for his wife, who was unfaithful or on the verge of being unfaithful. So they are desiccated husks of people, not really fully operating. I mean, one of the things I didn't mention was that Betsy, the nurse, uh, does kind of have a chaste, looks like a budding romance with the lead brother, um, whose who's plantation it is, even though it doesn't really go anywhere. Yeah, it's kind of like, like oh, I'm falling from, for you, long looks into each other's eyes, 12 hours later, she's 
she's gone from the island. But <laughs> that was yeah. fun. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a little, it, it, there's almost a little bit that the when the brother and the wife dispose of themselves, it's you get rid of two impediments. Like, okay, that's really clean for the plot. Where now they're gone, so if they want to, they can just carry on as if, hey, there's a new lease on life. You each, you each found each other in this really fucked up tinderbox. But now the beautiful thing is, you could just have a fresh start. You can you can begin all over again, and the, the, the zombie is dead, and your brother is gone. He killed himself, and so eh, congratulations. This is gonna make Thanksgiving really awkward, but yeah, <laughs> give it a shot. I'm <laughs> So yeah, I mean that that is the uh, that's the run of the movie. I think that pretty much bounces through the through the plot. I mean, in you know what we can't describe, we can describe. I guess you can't really show is is the atmosphere. You know how beautiful that black and white photography is. How nice and languorous. I mean, it has just the right amount of melodrama. Like that's when they did it perfectly properly. You know, the, it's not sentimental, but it's melodramatic, which is great. Melodrama like really pops off the screen in the right place and. Um, Luton and Turner knew that to make these noir movies with their high contrast chiaroscuro shadows uh, work, you know, the actors swooning and, uh, you know, making very crisp gestures to the camera and, and emitting a lot of body language is the language. That's the name of the game. Those things work perfectly. And those, this movie, oh, also, this movie is really short did you notice it's like something like 68 minutes yeah i mean like and they take their time with it they yeah it's a very crisp plot line but it's very it is like you said languid it's beautiful and they do a lot of subtle things to make it not feel like they're rushing through things yeah i mean i i realized that movies are now we have this sort of standard 90 to 200 minute uh time you know like if you do go to see uh, infinity war it's this enormous thing i'm sure that rock movie in the skyscraper was also long as shit probably didn't support that length even wreck it ralph was long but uh, back in the day you know 68 minutes meant a movie you'd say boy that's practically a novella is that a feature is that a short what is it it's like no that's a feature back in 1948 1943 sorry and i i love that that this movie had such an economy to it yet it, it doesn't feel rushed it doesn't feel short you don't feel Feel like there were any ideas left off the page it literally uses every single part of the buffalo really effectively and it was state-of-the-art for like 43 you'd find a lot of movies that were on this on the slim side i mean to us they seem on the slim side but you know it was perfect it, the, the running time was great and it just seems unorthodox now to me just because we live in this weird hellscape of, of loaded filmmaking you know trying to make people definitely spend money at that snack stand because you're going to be there for six hours now and you're going to want food <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's, uh, yeah, they said that about, uh, what is it, Avengers was literally something like almost three hours. It was was some crazy-ass length. Yeah, bring a bucket and a catheter. (laughs) I mean, I do anyway. That's just because, that's the way I like to roll in a fun. So, I mean, is there anything we didn't get to describing with this that you want to address before we, before we uh, turn the page to the other film? No, I think, I think we touched on everything very well. Um, I mean, like, we did... I should put a, like a hashtag spoilers at the beginning of this for people who haven't seen the movies and want to. But um. <laughs> yeah, luckily, it's not, it's not like it's burning a hole through culture. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. if you want to see it, you'll see it. And maybe if you listen to me, you've already forgotten if I, you know, you've already forgotten what I've said if you really want to see it. So I don't think it will really interrupt your your viewing experience. Although yeah. I I did not know what was going to happen. I honestly 
watching it, it was a pleasant surprise that I could not put the dots together in figuring out who did what, which I always love being surprised. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it's a surprise who the zombie is at any point in this movie, but it's kind of like, Correct, okay, yes. so we have a zombie, they're walking. What else is happening? <laughs> Where will this zombie um, walk? <laughs> it, li- it lives up to the title, exactly. And, and yeah, so then speaking of living up to the title, we zip ahead to 87. With, yeah. It, it, now, I could, I'll tell you, I was a kid when this came out. 1987, I was 12 years old, right? And and I remember reading the pages of New York Newsday and looking through the reviews in the back. I think it was John Anderson was the film reviewer back then. And, and I mean, I loved the movie reviews back then. I wasn't reading Pauline Kale or anything like that. But I remember this movie having this gigantic buzz, or maybe not even a buzz, but a black mark against it because of the idea that it was so transgressive. It was so boundary-breaking and taboo. And that led, that, that's what Angel Heart led with from the start, was that it was this forbidden movie that the censors had to take an axe to, mm-hmm. and that it had this incredibly provocative performance by Lisa Bonet, who was still on the Cosby show at the same time, or at least this was maybe one of the breaks from the Cosby show, or maybe she was almost done with it. I, this movie was such a legendary taboo project, having watched it for the first time since, you know, since forever, but now at the age I am, I understand what back in the, the economy, uh, the shock economy of 1987, this was so... Uh, transgressive. However, it's like, I feel like we see this kind of, essentially it's Mickey Rourke's ass pumping on top. He's laying on top of the uh, Lisa Bonet. This, this is, I'm, I'm cutting to the, 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 uh, you know, the, 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 the reason why uh, everyone was upset. Yeah, exactly. The shock. What is the, what is the origin of the shock? And it's like, well, Mickey I mean, Rourke's it's, ass and a lot of blood being dumped on it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that's not impressive. <laughs> Somebody me. somewhere has that, you know, as a, a standard part of their evening. <laughs> I think it's actually Mickey Rourke. I think they just, he was just filming something he did for the most part, anyway. But yeah, so that, right. It was it was a shitload of blood being dumped, and it and it was it was the fusion of gore. Although it wasn't like their blood; it was blood that was leaking from the ceiling. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, you, you saw the thrusting of the pelvis and the buttocks. And, uh, okay, like I said, I've seen many many worse things on film at this point now. And yes, but you could shock people in '87, and you're going to get a. A pretty bad write-up for the MPAA, and they're going to make you cut some footage out of it. And a guy like Alan Parker, who directed this movie, I think had that um, middle-aged man's sensibility of, I'm a transgressor. You know, if you think, like, back to Verhoeven. Verhoeven, who now I think is, like, 80 years old, and he's still making movies like L. right? It's crazy. He's been around forever. But, you know, Verhoeven wanted to shock the shit out of people, which is why he had shocking violence and, like, total recall. And, you know, the the, the beaver shot from uh, uh, Basic Instinct. You know, these things were there to be transgressive, and they really, really, really wanted to scare, like, you know, middle American audiences, what they, you know, considered to be, like, fundamentalist pinheads, people who would put labels on record, like, with Tipper Gore, that kind of shit that was going on back in the day. You know, it's funny, like, again, I'm leading with this, however, it's such a small part of the movie, and it doesn't really... The whole movie is like a larger exploit than that. Um, yeah. This movie is it's, it was great. Oh yeah, I love how it just gets. It goes from a very typical cut and dry noir. This case walked in, and I was just slowly felt to it, like just slowly unraveling into a supernatural. Yeah. What the fuck is happening? And it, but in a way that you're you're only given enough rope. Uh, the slack in the rope comes. You know, 
with enough room for you to sort of unravel it and, and make sense of what's going on. They give you, at the speed of the dispensation of information, is a very logical and successful way to, like you said, increase the stakes, where it starts off with a Sam Spade-type hard-boiled thing. And this is not, in the 40s, the way a lot of the, the Dashiell Hammett books were. I guess they were written in the 30s and 40s. This is set in 55. So it's a period piece... Which actually, I didn't even know. I thought Angel Heart was set in the 80s. Again, I was an idiot. I had no idea. So it's 55. And yes, it's it's a detective story that opens up and it becomes something much bigger with a lot of supernatural, I mean, totally supernatural elements, quite literally satanic, you know, elements. And I mean, you you know from the moment De Niro gets on the screen and his name is Louis Cipher? Yeah, Louis Cipher. <laughs> like, when they say it for a brief moment with a French accent, you're just kind of like, did you just hiccup saying Lucifer? No, no, no. And then he just, like, corrects him with, like, a very Americanized accent. You're just kind of like, no, you're still saying Lucifer. <laughs> we get right, the joke. It's a little bit of bullshitting. That's the fun. That's the great part about yeah. it. It's a little bit of bullshitting. However it works, and uh, I, I mean... Everybody knows the beginning, you know, the stipulated beginning of a noir movie is that, yeah, the case walks into your house. It's a bigger thing. It's a bigger shit pile than you know you're going to get into. And it, you just, you're not aware of it when you sign on the line. Shit just gets deeper. And it's up to you as the detective to be faster and stronger and quicker and smarter than the bad guys, uh, whoever they are, just so you'll stay alive. And not, not only will you stay alive, but you'll come out at the end with what the fuck was this all about? And that, you know, that this movie has all those pieces in bound. Um, and this, this was based on a book, right? Uh, or at least yeah, loosely Fall, adapted? Fallen Angel was the name of the book. Okay. Is, is it something you read? Because I wasn't aware of this. Um, no, that I just I saw that in the credits. I was like, oh, both of the movies that we're watching were based on books. Because uh-huh. um, yeah. Hell of the Zombie was also based on a book. Right. Yeah, this was, this was um, stretched and pulled like taffy by Parker... Um, I think he knew the writer, and the writer, maybe like a newspaper guy, he was some craftsman going way back, and his whole, the, the book I know that this was based on was all set in New York. It was all set in the, um, I want to say 1960, or 1959, and he decided to relocate the timing to 55 because he wanted it to be dead in the middle of the 50s, not pushing up on the 60s at all, and he also sent the action down to the Big Easy, uh, yeah. which apparently the book does not have anything to do with. It. Well, the, the occult all takes place in New York, but giving the chance to um, put something in the land of, uh, of the occult, I guess there's, you know, whatever that sort of mysticism of Louisiana. I mean, I don't... Do, do, do we associate Louisiana with a lot of... Uh, Say, like with voodoo, I mean. I mean, I've gone to New Orleans for a couple things. I've aside from it being a place where you'll find a lot of people like kind of celebrate it in like a kitschy way. Um, it had been a hot spot for it, but when it comes to like actually like where you'll find um, the religion, anywhere that would have been a spot from which people would have immigrated from the Caribbean, and, right? And, yeah, that makes sense. And or a place um, where the um, Osera religions, so Western Africa, Northwestern Africa, so the vast majority of the Eastern United States, Canada, and Brazil, as well as anywhere in the Caribbean, is where you'll find the religion. Yeah, yeah. um, 
I mean, I guess that if you set this after, you know, I mean, if you set it post-war, first of all, which, you know, the, the, again, the book was set post-war, you get the chance to revisit trauma from the war. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, that's not a sucker for that kind of thing. Every time you have a character dragging around in this, whatever, the, the I guess it's the solidly Americana, you know, days of like Eisenhower. This is that, that right in the middle of the... Americans, the American decade, you know, post-war where we were a powerhouse and, and, you know, all the best parts about America and all the worst parts about America are sort of kept off the page. But you do get all these characters, these young guys are dragging around trauma from being shell-shocked in the war. And so Mickey Rourke has that too and it fits in perfectly. And, it, you know, I know it, maybe it's a cliche, but it's a good cliche. I mean, it does, it does explain a generation full of men who were just thought of as being you know, oh, you're the heroes that went over and you, you turned back the Hun. You know, you fought the Nazis and won. It's like, but you, they, they came back fucked up because they saw some they saw some real shit up. It has a place in, in you know, it has a place in literature. It has a place in movies. It's 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 not cheap to employ, especially if you're using those um, if you're using those themes of you know a characters. They're unwilling to do horrible things. They are so haunted by the, either the things that they did or that they saw other people do. I mean, it makes sense because Rourke is a very handsome actor, and he is actually a great actor in this one. I kind of forgot how strong that guy was hitting it back in the day, because he's a fucking fraud. Uh, not a fraud, no, it's a farcical, weird, clay man of a human being for whatever he did to his face. Yeah, he got weird. Big time, big time weird. It was like right after this. It was like ten minutes after this is when he fell off the, he fell into the pool and, and went away for a while. Yeah. But, I mean, he was, he was in... Um, uh, Jesus, he was diner, and he was in, in in all these movies, and he looked great. I mean, he was a very good yeah. actor. He could, he could, he was the Pope of Greenwich Village. He was in Year of the Dragon from Michael Cimino. Like, there's all these like hidden gems from the '80s that people kind of forget were out there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and and he was a committed method guy. He was like the inheritor to you know if you had all the Scorsese guys, the generation of the, the new Hollywood dudes from the '70s, your Kaitels and your De Niro's. Mickey Rourke was supposed to be the next one. He was like the next generation. Yeah. And he was until he fucked up his face and just became a lunatic, you know. <laughs> 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 I mean, look, I, I could I could say that like he it is it, it adds something to it in that you have a guy who is as slick and as handsome. He's he's everything that Ryan Gosling wants to be today, but Ryan Gosling I think is just lacks a little bit of flexibility, fluidity, and grit. And he can't quite get to the same places that uh, Mickey Rourke was able to do quite easily back in like 85 to 89, um, which is why we don't have an actor like Mickey Rourke anymore, who was so pretty but also looked like he just woke up in a gutter and you, you bought it. You bought it the entire time. He looked yeah. like a man. You know, he looked like a grown-up is what I should say. Yeah, if, if we could just have a couple more like very traumatized-looking pretty boys in Hollywood, that'd be great. <laughs> I would take, you know, I mean, yeah, great. We are having more and more guys like Mahershala Ali and interesting people taking over the reins and saying, well, you know, fuck the, the sort of waspy looking dudes and we're not going to do that anymore. We'll just put Momoa and everything until we get more people like him. That dude, you know what? He can do it. He can get it. He can do the job. Whatever it is, I'm just really into his energy and I will take it. Whether it's something about like Polynesian dudes like The Rock or him, you know, he's, he's a Hawaiian. Yeah. There's just some like take no shit kind of, uh, yeah, weird energy comes off of that guy. No lack of confidence at all. That's for damn sure. Yeah, we'll we have a buddy cop film with Momoa and Helmsworth and we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would see that. I would do it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. 
Well, speaking of cops, let's let's get back to Angel Heart real quick. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, Angel Heart is you know De Niro shows up. He's the he's the client. His name is Louis Cipher. He he's groomed incredibly. I like he talk about uh, with the fingernails and the beard and the hair. That stuff looks great. I mean, yeah. what a what a De Niro did a great job, dude. Man, it is like the shit. Yeah, he. And I know again he was hitting it strong. This was right around the time of Untouchables. You know he he put on he put on all that weight in eighty uh eighty seven eighty eight for 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 Brian De Palma to the Untouchables. Yeah, I think it was immediately and after this one. Immediately, immediately after he he became yeah. a yeah he went into he went into it, and um but I mean it's that level of handsome that you know he's not the kid that was in like Mean Streets. He's not even the kid that was in Taxi Driver. It's like this is a, an older, more gra- gravelly, gristly version, but still very appealing, very attractive, and even deeper into his instrument, like his craft. He really knew what to do. So he's got very, very few, what, three scenes in this movie? Something like that? Yeah, he's got the one, like, and two of them are in churches. Yeah, um, not an accent. That's not an accent. Yeah. That's a very, very intentional. So he's got, the, see, he's got the two in the churches, the one in, like, that semi-abandoned-looking restaurant. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which was down in Mulberry, I think. It was an actual restaurant. I don't know if it's there anymore, but yeah, it was an actual Ital restaurant in, in Little Italy. And then the one in that in the woman's house at the end. It's like yeah, Charlotte Rambling's house, yeah. Like four, four. scenes. I mean, it's nice that you, they didn't... Um, it was a big deal to have a guy like that in this movie. And if he's playing the devil, the last thing you want to do is have him show up every ten minutes. Uh, they kind of conserve their shock value, because until you realize he's Satan, that's kind of towards the end. He's just this eccentric guy with a lot of ominous. Uh, he eats that that boiled egg in the beginning as he's like giving Mickey Rourke his marching orders and saying, "Oh, what have you turned up?" And he's unrolling the egg and peeling the shell off of it. And he says to Mickey Rourke, "You know, some religions think the egg is a symbol of the soul." And then he just like eats the egg. Nom 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 nom. Would you like an egg? I love souls. Nom nom. Would you like? Would you like a soul? No, <laughs> you don't want <laughs> no, one. You. I've already had breakfast. <laughs> no thanks. I've had, I've had a, pack, a pack of cigarettes for breakfast. Thank you, though. <laughs> um, yeah, and so so things go to shit in New York. You, see, you know, this is neat. You know the movie uh, "Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia" by Sam Peckinpah. Yeah. So this is that. I, I mean, you know, it's a guy deputized with finding another guy who he knows he's not well. In this case, he doesn't know he's not going to find him. But we, as the audience, really get the sense that you're you're looking for your own tail. This is an Ouroboros thing. Yeah. And uh, I mean, those stories are great. There's something. It's futility. It's tragedy. It's dark. It's very much uh, what we've been doing in American films from the '70s onwards. So I did think of, of Alfredo Garcia and that Mickey Rourke is looking for. Well, you find this at the... I'm not going to tell you. You know what? I'm not going to spoil this one because you should definitely see this one. So we shouldn't blast through the plot of this. We should just talk about the atmosphere and the details because I really did love where this ended. I, again, I didn't know. I'm an idiot. I'm a freaking idiot. I love that these movies can pull the wool over my eyes every time. And I could be very easily fooled and tricked. And this did exactly the trick. Just being soaked in that atmosphere. Um, you know, first of all, the the... The New York of 55 was all shot down in the garment, not in the garment district, uh, uh, down in the, 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 the rag, the rag district, rag pickers district, like off of like, uh, Orchard Street, Mulberry, Lower East Side, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, it's like, no, it's Nolita, vaguely, right? Yeah. 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 Just like, but oh. back, 
yeah, the, the conception of it from the eighties where it still looked like it still looked like the fifties. It was totally ungentrified. I mean those those projects and those there's probably still laundry hanging out from the fire escapes and all that yeah. stuff. It's I mean, extremely yeah. Right now it like it's still all that, but like they've made it very pretty version of that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just, yes, yes. Yeah, it hasn't all, changed much. They've just you know, scrubbed everything with Lysol but then left everything there. It's wine bars. There's a lot of wine bars up yeah. and down, like Orchard, Rivington, and stuff like that. So that part of it looks great. Now, you could still make a movie shot in the 50s really conceivably. You know, and now, if you want to show gritty New York, they always take it out to Greenpoint because you can't shoot Manhattan anymore because there aren't any neighborhoods that look like New York. They shoot in Greenpoint and call that. This is, um, you know, that's where they shot the Nick. That's where they shoot Luke Cage and Jessica Jones over on, on the Netflix Marvel comic shows and. You know, by now they've burned all the Greenpoint. We know what every single square inch of Greenpoint looks like because it's been used for locations outside. This is, you know, you have the chance to do that back down with a stuff. It was, it was shot where it takes place, and this was the last seven minutes of being able to do that. And I love seeing that New York shit from back in the day, where this place actually looked like something. Um, yeah, and so and then the, the action shifts to Louisiana. You know, he takes, I guess, a train down to Louisiana, and he's in the the rest of the movie takes place in the heat of New Orleans. He's looking for his man, and there is a mixture of voodoo. There's a mixture of like zydeco, of blues. The music gets in there. There is a whole box of crayfish. The crop like fall. He fall. He gets pushed into. They like punched into a box of like crawdads and like they fall on them just to like root this in the place <laughs> every single thing you could think about bourbon street you know uh gumbo uh all that stuff the thick accents it's yeah, all uh, there that scene with the gumbo at the end i was like oh uh. <laughs> <laughs> the makeup was great like what what they did to that dude when he was in the gumbo was yeah. like oh, that's that's brutal that's pretty good that's like creep show like they, they kind of got that they got that right yeah um yeah, and so he, he's down there looking for his guy, and he gets mixed up because the, the locals, uh, the cops, are the same thing. You know, any noir detective has to has to be on the bad side of the cops. So John Q. Law has to want to fuck the guy up, and they do. Uh, you get you get these, like, two really sort of risable, heavyset cops who are, you know, movie trope guys, but they're great. They do the job perfectly. Well, it's one fat one, one skinny one, so it's, it's like, yeah. you know, they got, they got to have both stereotypes – all sorts mm-hmm. of things, yeah. Yeah, and then the bad guys who are running around in a pickup truck with like a giant Rottweiler in the back. They yeah. sit, you know, he's, he's on the lookout for them too because he's getting too close to the truth. That works great. And, you know, like any good, good noir detective hero, he is just smart enough to put these pieces together. Uh, he, he gets – he knows exactly what he's going for. He just doesn't understand each, – each thing leads into another thing, and the bigger picture doesn't tend to make any sense. He's almost like getting more confused, but he's on the right track. And Charlotte Rampling shows up for one scene. I mean that was uh, that was weird because she's like on the box. Yeah. And yet she's kind of just in one or two speaking scenes before, you know, she gets – like any good again, any good more dame, a twist, you know. Uh, uh, she gets she gets off in a very creative way, you know, and that that makes it more. I gotta say, when when Charlotte Rampling is 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 gotten rid of, when she's disposed of, that's where it becomes more like the '80s horror movie thing. Like yeah. that is transgressive death, and I won't say anything more about that because again, you're gonna you're gonna want to see it. To, to believe it. Um, and that's the difference between Dashiell Hammett and what Alan Parker's doing with this movie. It gets very gritty at that point. And I think that it, that's really when the movie's starting to speed up and you start to realize, oh, you were seeing hints of exactly how all these deaths were going to happen, 
before they happened. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah. right. Um, like, right. It just, it just about everyone he meets winds up meeting a gratuitous end. And and, and you were seeing a reference as to how they were going to die before they died, and like right around either her death or her father's death, you start to realize, oh wait, we just saw a reference to that. We just saw yeah. that. Yeah, and that's it, the causality starts to kick in and you figure oh well that only points to one guy he's chasing this he's chasing this dude what was his name johnny handsome or johnny johnny, johnny favorite, favorite. Right? yeah what a great name that is like that's the very, one actual <laughs> very very crooner yeah very crooner <laughs> yeah but his name was like you know like gordy Bergelstein. you know it was like he had some like thick jewish name that he changed you know like they did back then you know, yeah he, it, was too, it was too ethnic to go out the door with so they, they messed it around with it yeah um yeah, and, and it picks up and it gets more violent. And, you know, you do meet Lisa Bonet, who has an occult connection. There is uh, – and then in the woods you have – I don't know. What would you – would you describe that as a Santa Rhea uh, uh, exercise in the woods? Um, I'd describe that as everything that Hollywood, especially in the okay. 80s, would misinterpret and paint um, Santa Rhea. And what I really – Oh, when I saw that scene, I was the whole time I was like, "No, no!" Like the only time I was yelling at this movie was whenever he was hitting on Bonet because I was like, I kept just being like, "She's half your age." I'm uncomfortable. She actually, you're not even wrong. She is. I mean, I think she's 17. She's yeah. not quite street legal, even as it goes. Yeah. Yeah, I was just kind of like, "Ugh," <laughs> I was uncomfortable. Um, but, so they they did the thing though, didn't they? Um... I know the lighting was a little hard to see, but I mean, I had a good, I had a clean copy. They were like cutting the chickens' necks and like standing under the blood. That, yeah. that was pretty much what was going on in the woods, right? Yeah, that was going on in the woods. Um, yeah, so it was just kind of like dancing under gutted chickens and also just like having sex in the blood. That's yeah. not what would happen. <laughs> you know, it's 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 lurid. I mean, it yeah. is. Whether I mean, I think Alan Parker had less in mind about portraying Santeria in any kind of accurate way, and more about how can you accelerate and um, elevate and escalate your typical noir tropes and make it something weird. Yeah. Um, definitely keeping in with the time, and definitely keeping in again with this, this director, who um, I mean, he's not really a provocateur so much, but. Like, Alan Parker, if you go back into the annals, what has he directed? He's kind of been on ice for He directed this movie with Kevin Spacey called The Life of David Gale in 03, and that was it. I think he was, like, canceled after that. Oh, okay. But he made, he made um, Mississippi Burning after this, which was... Oh, uh, uh, Yeah, yeah, that was him, sure. And this is even... He made the fucking wall, you know, the Pink Floyd. He, made, he directed... <laughs> oh, okay. I'm like, where do I know there. him from? I know him from something. And the commitments too, which I have to admit, I never saw the commitments. The Irish uh, sort of bluesy—that's kind of a light comedy, or a little yeah. bit of a light comedy. Yeah, it's like a folksy, a folksy comedy from from the early nineties. See, he's got yeah, it's a strange. He's veering all over the place. He wasn't really in the mood 
mood to like scandalize people. But for some reason, you got to be in his bonnet about going over the edge here. So you get to put in Satan. I mean, you get to put in a lot of pentagrams. You get to put in a lot of gory deaths. You get to put in this transgressive sex scene. You, there's blood from the ceiling in the sex scene, and there's blood from the chickens in the in the forest. Right. Yeah. Uh, what I found really interesting was that this is made eighty-seven, right? A lot of what I was seeing um, in terms of the occultism, which was kind of vaguely pinned on Santoria, but um, like in the movie, was very much hearkening to a lot of what was going on with the satanic panic around the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was kind of like, oh, I've yet to get someone on the show to talk about anything to do with LaVey or the very, there's like two or three different um, satanic religions. There's like the Church of Satan, there's the actual LaVeyan church, and there is Satanism. But with the satanic panic was going around just being like, oh, this this thing the kids are doing these days happens every generation, apparently, because life is cyclical. Oh, it leads to sacrificing animals, weird sex, and candles, and stabbing and murders. Like, like <laughs> X equals those things, whether it's um, D&D, rap music, video games. Mar- uh, He-Man. Mar- Actually, He-Man, He-Man. He-Man was part of it, yeah. Marijuana, like every like ten, fifteen years, there's a new thing which apparently creates this thing. When it's no, it does Satanism creates Satanism, and also Satanism doesn't do those things. Not, not, not for a single second. Nobody yeah. has ever paid attention to the Satanic Bible. They didn't actually read uh, yeah. any of that stuff. That's become lurid. I mean, there's Halloween themed art house like film parties that people will do fake versions of that. That's the closest you'll ever see to people doing that. <laughs> yeah, the satanic, I, there's a guy I know, uh, an Australian who lives here in, in Brooklyn, and his, um, I tell, you know, I, sometimes the best cultural, like, commentators come from without. There's, if you have a, a slight distance from where you're in, you, you get, the, you look at it a little more clearly. And this dude's from uh, Sydney, he's a filmmaker, he's a yeah. really smart guy named Paul. And he has done a lot of, he's making, like, feature, a documentary about the satanic panic. Oh, cool. And, and yeah, and so it, his thing is sort of springing out of heavy metal. Nice. And that there was a heavy, there was a heavy metal band I want to say outside of uh, Minneapolis, who were purposely provoking squares, you know, purposely provoking the sort of Jim Bakers of the world, you know, their their whole thing was making it seem like, oh man, we're going to convert your children. They're all going to be these, you know, ass fucking, you know, drug addicts. They're just going to be this huge you know, weird, perverse bouquet of, of antisocial behavior that, you know, you Christian normies can't handle. Yeah, the worst thing you could do is marijuana and sodomy. <laughs> at the same time, one usually leads to the other. Or one wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a lot of fun without the other at this I point. I mean, what, what else do you think a Midwestern Christian is going to think a bong is? <laughs> Some sort of marital aid, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess. Uh, so, like, th- this movie uses all those things. I, you know, that's, that's, I, I would, like you said, this is a fictionalized version. It's a hyper-stylized version. It doesn't bear any resemblance other than the fact that there is blood and a chicken and the devil and pentagrams. And, it, you know, it's superficially picks up on all of those ciphers, and so to speak, pun intended with Lewis Cipher. Aha, uh-huh. uh, uh-huh, see what I did there. And uses them all really well. I mean, it makes a one damn hell ass film out of all those things. I mean, if, if these are both both of these films are, are, are first of all a great rock block, they're really worth watching together. Yeah. 
just you know whatever loose connections they have stylistically they're they're kind of different from one another too because of so many years between them but they're both fucking great i mean they're made by real tried and true craftsman alan parker knows what he's doing jacques chenard was a fucking master everyone reveres now at, at the the shrine of this guy uh and so like this movie you know whatever if you can get over blood if you can get over mickey rourke's thrusting ass and you know a topless lisa bonet which again today i feel like those things aren't nearly as um scandalous as they once were this has it all there were a lot of nipples in in uh angel heart actually yeah yeah um there was a lot of nipples there was a lot of see-through thin gossamer shirts there was a lot of people in the rain um you know i'll tell you the one thing about this movie that really put me off was and it has nothing to do with the craft of the film has to do with the fact that mickey rourke is wearing a suit the entire time, even if it's a linen suit, he's in Louisiana, and the heat, the humidity of this, of where it looks like it was shot, is just coming off. And Mickey Rourke is like wet with perspiration, under wearing a jacket and a shirt and a pair of like flare trousers. Yeah, he looked, that is like too much. He, he looked just like he was swimming in himself. <laughs> like, I could but smell that, it. The costume was great. Yeah, he's swimming. Right, the costume was great. It was absolutely. Uh, he, I mean, he was cut for him. You know, it's a big cut because that's what they used to do back in the fifties. Guys were wearing very roomy outfits. But I mean, he's he was fit. He was in great shape, and I mean, it looked great on him. But yeah, it's like how was a man? And not only that, but the the button on the shirt is also buttoned to the top button. No tie, but it's like as much. It's like, can you just let a little air in? Could there just be a single second of ventilation? It's like, nope, not even a single bit of it. No. But this, this, look, this is the kind of thing I notice. This is where I get my nose at a joint watching, uh, you know, imagine what guys would have been like. Every single man, every male, every square waspy guy in America was walking through the 50s in a black suit in the middle of August in New York City, sweating their asses off with no air conditioning. And that's why, that's why all these people lived so miserably for so many years, because they had no climate control. It was just a terrible place to live and a terrible way to live in it. That's all I can think. So you're saying that if we had had men in booty shorts as early as the 30s, we wouldn't have had McCarthyism? I think that if uh, Joe McCarthy had more ventilation, if the guy was wearing one of those, like, uh, a Daglo mesh top, okay. something that you, you would have seen at, like, the Folsom Street Fair. Yeah. Yeah, just something with a lot more air. It wouldn't have, like, he still would have had his credentials, his waspy bona fides. It's just that he, he would have breathed. He would have, his flesh would have been, you know, outside of that, that yeah. uh, gabardine prison of all those woolen suits. Literally, morally, and figuratively. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we can only sit here and speculate what it would have been like. The course of human history, was he not wearing his ass popped out? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Look, fuck that guy. You know, if he's spinning in his grave, that's fine. I don't have a <laughs> hashtag <laughs> mesh shirts save lives. <laughs> mesh halter tops save lives. Mesh Again, halter tops for social progress. You gotta take it back. Take it back to the Folsom Street Fair. Maybe some kind of leather thing. He's gotta wear some kind of <laughs> assless chaps for breathing. Assless chaps, even assless chaps. So it's look at the pictures of Folsom Street Fair. Those things look kind of stifling. That is a it, it can get warm in, in in San Francisco, and that's like heavy leather. And I'm like, ah, oh boy, not to say nothing of the stress position you're tied into. It's like that is a a, a, a that's a, a bulky outfit you're wearing too. Yeah. On top of that, I mean, Tom of Finland. That is pure aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> that is not for comfort. <laughs> 
I think there's a Tom of Finland documentary. Someone is either making a documentary about Tom of Finland or a fictionalized version of Tom of Finland. But I hope yeah, so. you figure that that's one of the last stones of like how many like major queer things can you like have? You know, it's breaking into you know major filmmaking. Uh, you know, like that you're getting. But Tom of Finland is such a huge brand, and I feel like it's worth making a movie out of. If you're going to make a movie about Betty Page, I think you could do a movie about Tom Tom of Finland. There's a double feature. <laughs> We're going to come back. We're going to, re- <laughs> we're going to revisit it. Yes. So, so yeah, I think that uh, that is my assessment of Angel Heart, and and I I'm loath to say more of detail about it. I want to leave it hazy because if any, I mean, it is just worth watching. I mean, I've, movies are worth watching, but this one's definitely worth watching. I would definitely caution people to get into it if they can. Very cool. Um, yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, if people want to reach out to you, um, would you want them to? Would you rather they go through me first? Um, no, would... no, no, by all means. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm, uh, I live on Twitter. I mean, uh, we are Kathy clatching and convocating with movie Twitter nerds. I'm at William Scurry, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S-C-U-R-R-Y. Um, I have a YouTube channel from the Facebook, the, 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 not Facebook, from the kind of filmmaking stuff I did. That's, uh, youtube.com slash amcaesar, A-M-C. A E S A R, and I'm on Facebook. I'm also, you know, happy to be do the Facebook thing. Although, I mean, I think Twitter is just more built for the kind of casual, uh, you know, dive bomb, sneak attack type thing. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I do a podcast of my own uh, on a weekly basis. We're on hiatus right now, but I do a, I do a show called I Don't Get It, which is a half hour, small trifling thing every week where we and a guy uh, who's both of us are 43, and we look at an element of younger kid culture. And we don't just, you know, we eventually wind up shitting on a lot of things, but what we try to do is quite, you know, unpack it and see why do people actually like it, especially if you if you are anywhere from like 13 to 30. What is this thing, and what is going on? What is driving it as a likable thing? And so, you know, whatever. Sometimes it's the fact that we just can't get it because we're too old, and cultural ciphers have changed too much. But we do give it a fair day in court. We try to be fair uh, and all those things. And so that's, I don't get it podcast. It's on iTunes, you know, Google play, Stitcher, all that stuff. So I'm, I'm very visible. I'm very hard to miss. I'm a big, big, big soft target. So anyone could hit me if they need it. Believe me. (laughs) Got it. Um, and if you would like to talk to me, feel free to find us on Facebook at drinks with God. Find us on Twitter at drinks W God, subscribe to our Podbean. subscribe to us on iTunes. Um, Definitely um, stop by our Redbubble page, buy some t-shirts. They say things like, uh, gay sex is my anti-drug, and ask me about my death anxiety. Um, (laughs) I just like the name, Drinks W God. I want to put, like, sign into a hotel under that name. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Mr. God, (laughs) you ordered some room service? (laughs) (laughs) Wilbur, really? <laughs> and uh, if you have had an alternative theological experience or if you can provide an in-depth viewpoint of mainstream religion, definitely please email me at drinkingwithgod, that's drinking with an ing at gmail.com, and uh, you all stay weird out there. Oh, this is a
Jordan Woods.